Hi, and welcome back to NALFA's Affordable Housing Podcast. My name is Caitlin Harris. I'm the Policy Director for NALFA. And today we're joined by Noelle Porter, the Director of Government Affairs with the National Housing Law Project. Noelle, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. To get us started, can you tell us a little bit about your background in housing? Sure. Um, I kind of zigzagged a little bit in my career to get to where I am today, um, but it all really took root in graduate school. I was actually working full-time for a homeless shelter um, in Tampa where I I received my master's uh, in public health, and um, I found an advisor who allowed me to kind of cater my entire degree program to uh, homelessness research and the intersections of homelessness and policy. And so I went on to work for the VA Center on Homelessness Among Veterans, and then the National Alliance to End Homelessness. Um, And in my intersections with the National Housing Law Project and some of our advocacy together on the Hill, I was sort of whisked away to to broaden out and come into this full public housing or affordable housing sphere. That's an incredible and intensive background in housing. Wow. Um, Can you share a little bit with our listeners what the National Housing Law Project is and just some of the policy priorities you've been focusing on there? Sure. Um, So the National Housing Law Project was originally a legal aid backup center um, in the war on poverty in the 60s. A ton of backup centers were created so that legal aid attorneys across the country who might not have you know, precedent or an understanding of, of narrow niches of either housing law or with other backup centers, things like um, you know, education law, uh, immigration law, all these different types of um, things, we could support those legal advocates across the country. And so today we still maintain an, a network of more than 1,400 legal aid attorneys across the country, and we continue to engage with them to learn about the litigation that they're practicing, but also to influence and assist um, in any way that they are, you know, continuing to serve folks on the ground across the country. But in the 90s, the the backup centers were defunded by the federal government, and all of us had a chance to become nonprofit organizations that really expanded into advocacy. Um, And so we now continue to do intensive legal and technical assistance for housing advocates across the country, especially for tenant leaders. Um, But then we've really expanded to be able to influence public officials and to drive policy and practice in some of the ways that we have an influence at the national level. And so in, in addition to maintaining that housing justice network of legal aid attorneys, we are very engaged in legislative and regulation uh, policy and changes. Um, And then we do a lot to try to participate in precedent-setting litigation that will continue to further advancements in how we serve vulnerable populations in housing. And what are some of those litigations that you're looking at? So we actually, there's one that's really relevant to um, the disparate impact rule. We are um, currently engaged in a lawsuit, and I'm not an attorney, so I'll try to make sure I'm not saying anything that uh, is off limits. Um, But we are engaged in in litigation against a tenant screening agency. And we'll come back to this a little bit at different points in the podcast. But there are um, disparate impacts, and we'll talk about what the definition of that is, of tenant screening agencies who essentially decide for a landlord whether or not someone is is eligible for tenancy, um, and they tend to pull from multiple sources, including credit checks, including criminal justice records, and also including evictions records. Um, But they might not be consistent in how they apply the different rules and regulations, in what sources they use. Um, For instance, the landlord may have a policy that if you've been convicted of a violent crime, you are not eligible. 
but the poll might say that someone was arrested and then it might result in we essentially will say like a red x or a green check for that tenant and it doesn't explain the nuance and they don't get an individualized assessment or approach to their tenancy and so um, a lot of those tenant screening agencies which are unregulated um, have broad-based implications especially for people of color people who are heavily involved in the criminal justice system victims of domestic violence and so we're actually suing one of those tenant screening agencies right now to show that there was a violation of the Fair Housing Act and and we're asking the court to decide you know whether or not this this had a uh, a disproportionate impact on the clientele. We already uh, won a motion to dismiss on the basis that tenant screening agencies can't be held accountable under the Fair Housing Act. Um, and the judge did say that they are accountable to the Fair Housing Act standards. And that's a huge win for us to prove that these guys have got to be kind of reined in because mm-hmm. um, there are hundreds of them and they're all operating with their own policies. And thank you for sharing that. Um, what exactly is disparate impact? Sure. So. The sort of colloquial way to describe disparate impact would be to call it hidden discrimination. Mm-hmm. It's not um, a policy, it, it's not a decision to overtly discriminate against a, a person of a protected class, race, gender, family makeup, uh, disability status is a really important one. Um, but it is anytime a policy that you develop is going to have a disproportional discriminatory effect on those protected classes. So it's an unintended consequence oftentimes. Another way of putting it um, in a more kind of complex description, what I would say is that it's a theory of housing discrimination um, that occurs when a a policy on its face appears neutral, um, but it has an adverse impact on these protected classes. And so, you know, we've sort of passed the era where overt discrimination, you cannot live here if, you cannot play here if, you cannot work here if, is been rooted, has been rooted out. But these um, facially neutral or appearance of neutral policies that then result in discrimination against these protected classes still need to be rooted out, still need to be found. We have a history of discrimination in housing, redlining policies that still um, that still impact folks today. And so we need this legal tool, this disparate impact theory, to be able to root out those less overt but still impactful areas of discrimination. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And disparate impact became a big focus around a 2015 Supreme Court case. Can you talk a little bit about that case and what's happened since that decision? Of course. So Just so you know, the suit was brought by the Inclusive Communities Project in Dallas, Texas. So we commonly refer to this case as ICP, uh, and so I may revert back to that. ICP brought this case. They are a collection of individuals or organizations who expand opportunities for low-income people of color. And they sued the Texas Department of Housing and Community Affairs for their administration of the LIHTC program. So ICP ran some analysis of the 9% uh, credits in Dallas and showed that the concentration of non-senior developments in communities of color and already segregated areas were being further developed by the administration of these credits. So they were concentrating poverty even more in areas where poverty was already concentrated instead of distributing uh, LIHTC credits across the community so that Dallas could continue to grow and improve with affordability. And so they essentially brought two questions to the Supreme Court. One was, is disparate impact a thing, for lack of a better word, under the Fair Housing Act? So essentially, do we have to consider discriminatory intent 
versus discriminatory impact. That's just that's um, disparate impact under the Fair Housing Act. So um, often discriminatory impact might be argued under the Civil Rights Act, things like that. And, and we were asking the Supreme Court to consider whether or not the Fair Housing Act covered it. And then we were also asking, what is the required analysis? So what does it take to prove that there's a discriminatory impact to policies and that it's directly caused by the policy itself, not that it has these sort of outside factors that exist in Dallas, et cetera. So what the court did was it affirmed that, yes, disparate impact can be brought under the Fair Housing Act. And then it denied certification, or it basically did not hear the second question of, of how, how analysis is required. So it essentially upheld the appeals court decision that the analysis that ICP had brought was sufficient to bring a Fair Housing Act claim. And the court also cited, and we think this is really important, the 2013 existing disparate impact rule in its opinion. So they upheld that the regulation that we're discussing today was a part of how discriminatory impact claims can be brought and why they are applicable under the Fair Housing Act. So it essentially tied the regulation that currently exists and the Fair Housing Act together in Supreme Court law. Thank you. Um, so, so the Supreme Court case didn't decide what was regarded as analysis. And so the recent disparate impact proposed rule, that did. Is that correct? I would say it's a little more complicated than that, um, but can I can share? definitely tell you kind of what we're doing with the what the administration is doing. With that would the be great. Proposed rule. Thank you so much. So um, the proposed rule, it does address analysis to some capacity, um, but it also is based on the current administration's interpretation that HUD's current regulations for disparate impact are overly restrictive beyond the ruling of the Supreme Court in 2015. And so uh, many advocates will tell you that because, and I said this before, because the Supreme Court cited the 2013 rule in its opinion, basically that can be interpreted as a nod to say that the 2013 rule is is um, is in coordination or it, that it exists in tandem with the um, with the Fair Housing Act and with interpretations of disparate impact theory and the ability to bring suit, um, but HUD is arguing that the current disparate impact regulation, that 2013 regulation, is overly broad, and so uh, you'll hear from folks who are arguing for this this overhaul and for this proposed change. One that the ruling, as I said, was too restrictive, um, and that. There's a broad litigation threat now that faces um, folks who might have policies that do have a discriminatory impact. And so um, those are really high legal costs, potentially, and it can be burdensome. The litigation is very burdensome. You know, I would point out that since 2013, it's still very, very difficult under the current regulation to bring a claim of disparate impact. You have to prove essentially three tests that are very stringent and very restrictive without the benefit of discovery. So you have to be able to bring these three claims without the benefit of discovery. And and if you can bring three tests to bear, then you can proceed with litigation against a disparate impact. And so what the new rule does is it creates a five-part test that is much more burdensome on the plaintiff. And if you can't meet all five of the standards described, then you're unable to even bring the claim. You can't even file suit against a potential discriminatory impact. And um, 
so it um, and a few things that are really important about that. You have to show that the specific practice that is happening under the current policy is the direct cause of the discriminatory impact. So you have to be able to rule out any um, mitigating factors that may influence the community's, you know, sort of redlining or distribution of poverty or other criminal justice policies writ large, how they may impact your current policy. They have to prove in this this five-part test that the member of the, the protected class is a part of a broad group, um, not just that it adversely impacted a specific plaintiff that was able to bring the suit. And so we'll talk about this a little bit more, but the proposed rule also adds three new defenses to disparate impact based on the use of algorithms or risk Mm -hmm. models. And there's a lot of talk about algorithmic discrimination happening kind of across platforms in the country right now. Oftentimes it involves a conversation about Facebook or um, some other tech algorithms and whether or not they're discriminatory, uh, whether or not they they prevent certain voices to be shared or heard. Um, but there's also a lot of talk in, in mortgages. And so we look at a person's credit history. We look at a person's uh, foreclosure history or, you know, their inability to pay their mortgage month over month um, and how their interest rates may differ. And... We already know that the bubble that burst in late 2007, 2008, 2009 disproportionately impacted people of color and low-income persons, Mm -hmm. and that those predatory lending practices oftentimes were targeting those people of color. That type of, um, of loss, that type of, you know, history of foreclosure, history of inability to pay, all of those things then follow you. And so there is a discriminatory impact to an algorithm, assuming that all of the numbers can tell you exactly what we need to know about you without the mitigating circumstances of whether or not you were a victim of um, the lending crisis, et cetera. And so that happens in rent as well. And um, you know these tenant screening agencies that we were discussing um, have this ability to sort of give everyone, I always say, a green check or a red X, give the landlord that and just say yes or no. You've got hundreds of applicants. This makes your life easier. It is facially neutral, as we've said. However, if folks have a history of arrest, but the policies of the building only limit histories of conviction, and the tenant screening agency just gives you a red check, you don't have the ability to appeal that, to discuss that, to be individualized in that. And so what the new rule would do is essentially create a shelter under algorithms that tells folks, if you don't want to be held accountable for disparate impact, what you should do is submit everything to an algorithm and then the algorithm is responsible for any discriminatory impact and you can be held outside of the liability. But we know that these algorithms still have not been refined to incorporate discriminatory effects Mm -hmm. and to account for them. And so what the new rule would do is really create an incentive for housers and for owners and for banks to seek algorithms that will remove any liability from them for discriminatory impact. And then those folks that wanted to sue would then have to pursue litigation against an algorithm instead of against the owners or the policies. Um, and so we certainly think that that is, um, is dangerous considering that we haven't refined these practices of algorithm and we, and we know that we're talking about a lot of discrimination on its face. Um, and finally, I would just say that um, kind of buried within the rule is uh, just a strike through of a really important definition, and that's the perpetuation of segregation. So, you know, folks generally have heard about our history of redlining in this 
in this country. Um, it's not a legal policy any longer, but those effects have lasted. And that's true of so many different types of discrimination across the country. And um, this definition of the perpetuation of segregation, so do you have a policy that perpetuates old segregation or old discrimination, um, is simply removed. And so we won't be able to um, examine practices or policies that may perpetuate segregation as we know it. Can you think of an example of where someone meets or a class meets all five of those thresholds? So, Caitlin, that's a really great question. As I said at the outset, I am not an attorney, and so I won't attempt to try to pass all five tests. But I will say this. What's really interesting about the rule is, let's say, and from what I understand, this is almost impossible. Let's say you do find an example, find an egregious example of discriminatory impact or disparate impact, and you pass all five tests. The burden then shifts from that plaintiff, that person bringing the complaint, to the defendant. And they have a number of different ways to then dismiss the case from there. And one of the ways within this rule is that the defendant simply has to prove that the cost of ending that policy or that practice that results in discriminatory impact would be too high to change. And then the case is dismissed. And so even if you were to pass all five of the tests included in um, the plaintiff's burden and it goes to the defendant, the defendant can simply say it would be very expensive for us to, to stop using that policy. So let's say you are using an algorithm and somehow you get through all this wouldn't work here. The defendant can simply say that algorithm saves us millions of dollars on man hours and review of applications, et cetera. And so we, we can't stop. So even if you pull through as a claim, as a, um, you know, and it's already incredibly difficult in our current regulation to bring a claim of disparate impact. And those that survive often still don't get to, to bring the suit all the way through. But even if you make it through, those, those owners and landlords and insurance companies simply have to prove that it's too costly not to have this discriminatory impact. Um, and that's pretty easy to dismiss at that point. Wow, that's interesting. So you've hit on the impact of disparate impact if the current rule is implemented. Do you think of any other impacts outside of um, some that you've already discussed? Sure. So NHLP um, initiated a campaign when the public comment period was beginning for this rule, and it was fightforhousingjustice.org. All of the materials are still up there. You can find out a lot of information about that. There was also um, a sister campaign called defendcivilrights.org, or hosted by a group from the Fair Housing Task Force. But NHLP's approach was to target a few different really specific groups of folks that are disproportionately impacted by disparate impact. It's terrible to have to say all those things. <laughs> so victims of domestic violence are oftentimes very caught up in the disparate impact of policies. Um, oftentimes, uh, victims of domestic violence have um, criminal justice involvement that is based on their perpetrator or their abuser, forcing them into criminal activity, carrying a handgun that is not licensed to them, maybe trafficking in drugs or sharing you know, across state lines. Oftentimes, their finances are tied into their perpetrator's abuses, and so he may or may not be paying rent, and I apologize for gendering this. The abuser may run up credit all using uh, the spouse or partner's name, um, and then that person flees and is now has you know poor credit, has mm -hmm. not has been evicted, has not paid rent, 
all on his or her record or has all of this criminal justice involvement. And we have to be able to individually assess um, because the, the protections for domestic violence survivors that exist within the Violence Against Women Act force an individualized assessment for employment and for housing um, to make sure that if it is, if all of that you know, credit or criminal justice involvement, et cetera, is tied into their abuse, then it is exempt from the policies that would prohibit them from finding tenancy or employment. And so we have to be able to show that certain policies like algorithms or like no criminal justice, you know, never having been arrested or nuisance ordinances, that those have a disparate impact on um, victims of domestic violence. A few other intersections that were really important to our campaign and why it was narrow, we were looking at um, those who are criminal justice involved. You know, if you have a history of arrest but not a history of conviction, there still may be policies that impact your ability to rent um, or even to buy. And we want to make sure that we're we're using due process in how we um, approach housing decisions for individuals. Additionally, immigration um, and the intersections there still have some implications within disparate impact theory and how policies may impact immigrants or people of color or people who speak a different language. If you simply don't have postings in commonly used languages in your community, that may have a disparate impact. And finally, the algorithmic discrimination. So we're really focused on how tenant screening agencies and the algorithms that um, you know rental assistants use, and even you know to a lesser extent for our organization, but to a broader extent for the the space, the sphere, um, the, the mortgage policies that are discriminatory in al algorithmic lending. Um, and so we really wanted to kind of narrow down into those niche populations and show that the impact is not just, you know, I think we often think of discrimination, we think of the sort of civil rights protected class implications, but there are some really narrow but very important and very focused ways in which this will impact all of these different niches that are just beginning to advance their own civil rights in this space. Noelle, thank you so much for sharing uh, the National Housing Law Project's campaign around disparate impact. What are some of the other opinions around disparate impact? So largely the sort of campaign to, to change the rule has come from industry groups. So um, owners of large property portfolios or insurers of housing mm -hmm. providers. And Simply their argument is that this, this constant threat of litigation for unintended consequences of policies and the burden and the cost to that um, threat is too high. Mm -hmm. And so we have to make it a little more difficult for people to continue to bring suit because we have to engage in that process and we have to respond no matter if we make it to court or not. And um, I'd, I wouldn't say that there's an opposite campaign to you know, defend civil rights or to our campaign fight for housing justice, but I think that for years, really since ICP and even since the introduction of the 2013 regulation, there has been a concerted effort of those folks that are financing and insuring a lot of affordable housing to advocate for a more, you know, narrow and restrictive approach to bringing discriminatory impact claims or disparate impact claims. So, you know, there, there certainly is the implication that this still can be damaging um, to owners and to insurers. So what do you think the next steps are going to be um, for this proposed rule? Sure. So we're in a very challenging part of any regulatory change. So just as a quick overview, in the Clinton administration, there was an executive order 12866 that expanded the process by which the public can engage with any regulatory change through 
the agency that's proposing the rule and through the Office of Management and Budget, or OMB, to really sort of say, we have to look at what the impact of this policy will be on the mission of the originating agency or on the sort of fiscal impact across the country. And so when we first started hearing about this rule, what we knew is that we had a summary of what it would be. Mm-hmm. And our first round of 12866 meetings where the public can go into OMB and discuss why we would like to defend current current regulations happened. Then we opened a public comment period, and this is where we start to see a flurry of activity. It closed on October 18th of this year. Um, We generated 45,000 comments for the rule. And when I say we, I mean the American public. Mm -hmm. So certainly there will be the voices of insurers and owners, just as we've discussed, as well as advocates who say that this process is already very tight, very narrow. And so what's currently happening is that HUD and OMB both have to do some review of all of the current information that they have. So that involves the early meetings that we took with OMB, the 12866 meetings, all of the comments. So they have to be reviewed, aggregated, qualitatively assessed. And then HUD has to make a decision based on OMB's feedback of whether or not there's significant fiscal impact and what those costs may be and what's required before we're able to implement this on based on the 45,000 public comments and then based on any changes sort of oftentimes if we respond to just public sentiment. Um, And so the next two stages, and it's really hard to time these out, will be another round of those OMB 12866 meetings that are available to the public and are oftentimes pretty well coordinated amongst groups that are interested to say, essentially, we've also reviewed these 45,000 comments and we believe there's significant public challenge to the proposed rule. And if HUD has not addressed that public challenge, then the final rule cannot be published as is. And also to continue to set, you know, sort of the the groundwork and to put out all of the um, public record that may lay the foundation for bringing any litigation in the future. And that would be true of sort of both sides of the argument. So folks use this current public phase to really nail down all of the information that is necessary if we want to continue to pursue litigation to the effect of either reverting to the 2013 rule if this is to pass or to continuing to advance for this if it's to go forward. Those sorts of things from both sides. Um, So we're sort of engaged in a hurry up and wait period right now. As folks review, we're looking to say, what can we anticipate? When might it happen? Will we have a rapid response strategy at that time? And also, I think it's really important to keep the conversation alive because, again, public sentiment is still a factor in all of the ways that we hope an administration will approach policy. And if this conversation continues while they review 45,000 comments, it's very possible for the administration to say, the American people were not ready for this regulatory change. And we hear that. And so we're holding here. And and so, you know, anything can still happen in these phases. And we want to make sure that we're a part of arguing our side and, and telling folks, you know, what it is we believe that we want them to do. So in the meantime, before the next step, whatever that looks like, comes out um, from the administration, what can you tell our listeners to do? Where can they read up about this and learn more? Um, You mentioned some websites. If you could uh, mention those again and any other sites that they can go on to review this information and be up to date with everything that's going on. Sure. 
So I think it's really important, um, you know, check out fightforhousingjustice.org. That's NHLP's campaign. You'll see those those sectors that we were talking about, as well as general talking points. You'll see some really interesting comment letters by women in the domestic violence space who made their voice heard. There's a lot of great content. I know that defendcivilrights.org also has some good resources. Um, the other thing that I would do is, you know, you guys have such this diverse network of folks that are really operating at the local level. And it's important to understand any previous cases or litigation that you might be engaged in and to begin to really understand on its face how challenging this current phase is based on the 2013 rule. What is it that the plaintiffs are bringing forward as a complaint? What is it that, you know, some of your agencies or even some of your partners might be having to use as defense? And when we look at this landscape and when we look at you know, what's being advanced as we continue to implement the 2013 disparate impact rule, is that cost so burdensome that we need to move forward with something like this incredibly restrictive new layer? Because I think, you know, we have to really consider what are the advancements and what are the what is the progress that's being made as we root out this kind of hidden discrimination with understanding that it is burdensome and it is challenging, but do we need to make it more difficult to prove discrimination, to undermine the Fair Housing Act, and you know, often to put industry profits over the people that are being affected by the policies? Well, we really appreciate you being here and sharing with us everything about disparate impact. Um, again, that's Noelle Porter, Director of Government Affairs with the National Housing Law Project. This is Caitlin Harris, and thank you for listening to Nalpa's Affordable Housing Podcast. 